Hello, hello, and thanks for tuning in to episode 16 of the Eyes Free Sports Podcast. Once again, this is your host, Greg Lindbergh. Here on the Sweet 16 episode of the podcast, we have a pretty sweet guest. He's racked up more medals than you can count in track and field. Also extremely successful at beat baseball and just an overall great guy and great advocate for the blind community. So, ready, set, jump. All right, so joining me here on episode 16 of the podcast, I'm very honored to have this guest. Uh, He's a multiple-time Paralympic medalist and even has uh, some world records to his name and has been involved in many sports, uh, specifically known for uh, the long jump and the triple jump. Uh, We have Lex Gillette with us. Lex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you. I'm glad to be on. Absolutely. This is going to be a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while, so really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Absolutely. So let's uh, kind of just start off, you know, going chronologically. Talk to me about your, your childhood, where you were born, and then I understand you were fairly young when you actually lost your vision, correct? Yes, I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I was, for the first eight years of my life, I could see really well and once i was eight years old i came home went through my normal day-to-day type things and that night i started noticing that i was losing my sight and it was random it started happening out of the blue really couldn't tell you why it happened or what caused it but you know we went to the doctor and after an examination they said that i needed to have an emergency operation because i was suffering from retina detachments and that led to a string of 10 operations the year that I was eight years old. And it was go to the hospital, get the operation done. I would be able to see pretty well for about three or four weeks. And after that time, my sight would get more blurry than what it, than what it was the time before. And I would go back to the, the hospital, get another operation. Seemed like it worked another three to four weeks. I could see well. And after that, my sight would get even more blurry than the time before. And so that was a pattern for the entire time that I was eight. And after the last one, the doctors basically said that there was nothing else they could do to help. And they said that I would eventually become blind. So from there, go home, go through your normal routine, go to sleep at night and wake up the next morning, see a little less than what you did the day before until one day I woke up and couldn't make out much of anything so this is a gradual process right and i got to imagine for an eight-year-old that's got to be tough to just kind of understand you know what's happening and processing all that yeah no totally definitely a lot of questions but i I think at eight years old you're just like oh am i gonna (laughs) am i gonna be able to play my video games and you know draw pictures and you know all of those type things but you know once it set in it was like okay well this is reality now and i can't i can't see to read or write and can't see my family or my neighborhood or any of those things so gotcha and then as far as sports and recreation uh, were you pretty active you know before losing your sight as a kid yes prior to me losing my sight i played recreation baseball i also i wasn't swimming competitively but i had by that point i had taking swimming lessons and I was running and doing the cannonballs into the pool and all the can opener and all that other stuff. Um, I played the typical backyard sports, dodgeball, played kickball, basketball, 
jump rope. So I was very active before I lost my sight. And then as far as school goes, then were you mainstream throughout uh, all your school, you know, K through 12 years? Yeah, I, uh, I continued to go to uh, public school. And they had all of the schools that I went to, however, had a, a visually impaired department or program. So I always had things in, in an accessible format. Um, I could get my, my books in Braille. Prior to me learning to read Braille, when I was going through the sight loss, I was still reading large print. So they made sure I had those things. And, and I was introduced to technology at an early age. And eventually, you know, JAWS for Windows became something that I used on a daily basis. And uh, like the, the Braille notes and uh, other devices that could help me do what I needed to do in a uh, classroom setting. As far as Braille, do you remember what age you were when you actually learned Braille? Uh, you know what? I think that as I began to lose my sight, I, I think that I was, they started to teach me then, even though it wasn't the primary uh, thing that I was using at the time. Um, so as I began to lose more and more sight, it eventually got to the point where um, then I had to lean on using Braille exclusively. So it took me, I know it took me a year and a half to learn Braille. So you know, by the time, and that, and, that, and that was at that particular time, it was grade one, grade two, and the Nemus code and stuff like that. I would have to imagine that by the time I was, 10 years old, I, you know, I was, I was using it daily and, and, you know, knew, knew all of the symbols and contractions and things. And then in terms of uh, college, I understand that you attended uh, East Carolina University. Yes, uh, it was awesome. I uh, graduated with a bachelor's in recreation management and we had a, uh, you know, East Carolina is a pretty large school. So they had a, a disability support services that I could go and, and, get everything that I needed. So all of my books I would take to DSS and they would, um, if it wasn't already available, they would take the book and scan it, turn it into electronic format PDF. And I would read the book on my, on my computer using JAWS. You know, there were certain testing accommodations that I could get a little extra time if I needed it. I could have a note taker as well when I was in class, someone who could take all of the, uh, the information from PowerPoints and things like that during the class. And that note taker would take the notes to DSS and then DSS would turn those into PDFs as well. So, uh, it was definitely the college experience was, was a lot of fun and, and they made sure that, that I had all of the, uh, you know, reasonable accommodations and, you know, things were accessible. I had all of the technology and I mean, it was a great, a great time, great experience for sure. And then in terms of, you know, sports and rec for the blind and adaptive sports, I'm curious, what was kind of your first introduction to that world? Man, that's a hard question. I think that, you know what, before I even got into like organized sports, my mom, she was really good about finding different resources and different things out there available hmm. and uh i know that she had bought me a, a basketball with some balls in it i used to play with that and bounce that around in the uh in the front yard at some point i ended up getting my first beat baseball and right. uh that was really cool but once i 
maybe middle school is when I really started really, you know, noticing and and, and being involved in adapted rec and, and sports. Um, I had a teacher, his name was Steve Crute, and we would, you know, he just made everything, uh, you know, accessible. You know, something as simple as, I remember we used to go out outside and we used to uh, hit the wiffle ball off of the tee. And he just adapted that in a way where I would put the ball on the tee, kind of, you know, envision where it was. And, and I adapted the tee to the height of where I, I would swing. And yeah, man, I'll be out there cranking them out. Uh, <laughs> and we... <laughs> <laughs> he he made up like different games, and you know I won the world World Series plenty of times with Mister Crew, um, <laughs> nice. and uh, he he had access to you know, a lot of other um, pieces of equipment from a you know a sports standpoint, and so he really you know fed my my imagination and my passion for for sports, and of course he knows that he knew that I was competitive, loved to win. You know, I had a great imagination, and and yeah, I mean, he just made it made it worth my while. Um, and then somewhere along the line, I was introduced to goalball, and uh, then I, I started wrestling for my high school track team. So I was wrestling when I was a freshman and sophomore, and um, you know, they make that pretty pretty easy. You start at the beginning of the match, you, know, you have constant contact. And then eventually I, uh, you know, by that point also I had gotten into beat baseball. So I played for my local team in North Carolina, the Raleigh Rockets. So I learned about beat baseball. That was, that was really awesome. And then eventually I found track and field and I learned about the, uh, found out about the Paralympic games and, and just this, this massive world of like, you know, sports for athletes who, have a physical disability. I definitely do want to talk a little beat baseball. That's that is my first love when it comes to adaptive sports. It's the one I play the most. Yeah. And uh, so I understand you played for the West Coast Dogs back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the uh, MBBA, one of my friends who he was the pitcher for my Raleigh Rockets team, and after our season was over maybe a month or so later, that's when the NBBA would have their world series. And so my friend, the pitcher, his name is Greg also. And, hmm. uh, he pitched for the West coast dogs. And so I always used to say, man, I got to go one day. I got to go. People would talk about there's There's a lot of teams in the North Carolina, South Carolina league. When I first started, I think we maybe had six teams. But in the World Series, they were, I mean, they had double-digit number of teams yep. there, and they were from all over the, the country. And then you even had a team from Taiwan. And, you know, at this time, uh, they may even have more teams from outside of the, uh, outside of the U.S. But uh, long story short, I went for the first time in 2003. And, uh, you know, I was there with Greg, and we had, you know, we had a couple other people from different areas, but the team was based in Northern California. And so I would go and, and practice periodically. And, uh, yeah, the first time I went to the world series, I mine was blown because I said, <laughs> wow, this is insane. There's so many 
great athletes out here, so many great pitchers, and people are smashing, crushing the ball into the field. Defenders are they're fast, they're quick, they're they're smart, and it's literally like a like a professional league. I was I was definitely uh, my mind was was definitely like wow, um, but it's always nice to be on that that type of level with other highly competitive athletes. So I enjoyed myself for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And I can definitely relate. Having gone to the World Series for the first time a few years ago, I was just blown away by the talent, the skill, the, you know, you, there's such a stereotype about people with disabilities and physical activity. And that's totally thrown out the window when you go to an event like that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what team did you play for? Uh, so I started with the Daytona Bats uh, from Daytona Beach, and then I've also played on the Athens Timberwolves with uh, Roger Keeney, who I consider a legend in the game. He, he actually played in the first World Series back in 1976 and continues wow. to compete to this day. So, wow, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, and then I got to play with the Braille Bandits uh, this last year out of West Palm Beach, which is kind of a newer team, so it's it's been a lot of fun. I just, uh, you know, I, I love talking about beat baseball to others and educating them, and it's, I'm so passionate about it. And uh, as far as your experience, I understand you did have the opportunity to, to win a few championships, right? Yeah, we won from 2008 till 2011. Man. Those West Coast Dogs teams, they were they were pretty stacked up. We had uh, Eric Mazariegos, who's just a defensive monster. Neil McDonald, he was also very, very, very talented on the defensive side as well. Uh, Seth Clark, who Seth is a bigger guy, so you throw that ball in, into his wheelhouse, so it's, it's going, it's going, it's, it's, it's going into the field somewhere. Yeah, uh, and then I made up, you know, I, I could. I can make good contact, but of course my my strength is that I'm I'm fast. So uh, hitting the ball and getting some sort of you know a little bit of air under it, you know I could almost be at the bag when the ball hits the ground. So uh, we had a lot of different you know a lot of different skill sets on the team, and then having a really good pitcher, you can attest to to this. Having a good pitcher is I mean that's huge. Um, no question. So someone who can someone who can help you. Uh, you know, make contact and put the ball in play so you can even have an opportunity to get to the bag. But, um, yeah, it, it was, uh, I want to say from 2006, we were in the championship game from 2006 until 2011, 06 and 07. We lost I think one year was to Kansas. And I can't think of, can't think of the other team that we lost. It might've been Taiwan actually. Um, hmm. but, uh, yeah, I mean, you continue to work at it. You continue to build that cohesiveness within the team, and uh, you keep fighting. And, and next thing you know, we found ourselves on top a couple times. And I even the 2010 and 2011 World Series, I hit the uh, the walk off runs for those championships. So that was a really good feeling. Wow, that's awesome. And just I'm curious about like the the celebration, you know, the thrill of victory, as they say. What was that experience like winning those titles? You man, it was it was really fun. Uh, 2010, I remember us. Uh, you know that was that was a game where I think that we were up, and uh, I don't want to say we might have been up maybe four or five runs. And Taiwan, they they got on a roll, hmm. um, and they were they, you know they were they were they were smashing the ball. It was 
flying. Um, and I do, there were a couple things I remember. One is they were on that huge run. They had, they eventually had two outs and one of their batter comes up, pitcher set, ready pitch. Wow. And the guy smashes the ball. And literally once I heard it come off of the bat, I said, Oh man, I gotta, I gotta retreat. And so, <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm listening to the ball. It's, it's screaming out, Ew! so it's coming. And and the way that I the way that I had like ran back diagonally and slid the ball, and I met at the perfect time, and I was able to scoop it up and and uh, and get the guy out. And and the reason I bring that one up is because there were a number of times prior to that put out where I felt like I had gotten the batter out, but they were, they were bang, bang plays. And, uh, and the umpires out there in the field, you know, everybody calls the umpire blue. So I'm like, Hey blue, I know you saw me get this ball, man. I know you saw me get this ball before I got it. But he's like, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. It was close. So when I finally got that, when I finally got that one, he, uh, and I heard him say out, (laughs) and there you go. I knew, I knew you could see what was going on, man. Um, so we were able to retire the side then, and uh, and that that final inning, the bottom of that final inning, I got up to the bag, and pitcher puts it in the right spot, hit it, and and I score. So that that particular championship, I was I batted five out of five in that game. Transition to the next year, two thousand eleven. Total different situation. We were down, I want to say, like four runs or five runs or something like that, and we got down to our final two outs. Mm. And uh, and and Timmy, our pitcher, he just starts going on a roll, and I and it like everything lined up because I remember the the batter who was sixth, who was Keith, I believe, he hits the ball. And it seems like this play lasts for 10 minutes. Like the ball is rolling slowly out there. And Keith, uh, you know, no diss to him. He's not one of the faster guys on the team. And and so I'm standing there like, oh, my gosh, come on. Come on. Come on, man. (laughs) And so he hits the bag. He finally hits the bag. He scores. That brings up our the, uh, the, the strength of our lineup. So then Chance, you know, he, he smashes one out there. He scores. Mikey, Mikey Finn, he smashes one out there. Boom, he scores. Uh, I want to say I want to say Eric got on back. He scored as well. And then Danny Fabiano scored. And so now after Danny scored, the game is tied. Still two outs, and, and I'm up to, to bat. Now – the, the year prior, I was five out of five. This game, I was over. I hadn't. They were putting me out the whole game. Oof. Yeah. And, uh, and so Timmy, he's he he just says something like, "All right, man, let's go." And uh, so he throws it in there. Boop! I hit it. Got a little air under it, and I skedaddle down there to that bag, hit it, and I heard the umpire say "safe," and I absolutely lost it. Um, I was <laughs> I was so excited and so happy and jumping around and you could hear everyone on the sidelines screaming and and uh, my teammates came down and picked me up and put me in the air and yeah it was it was it was crazy those those were 
some fun championships right there. No doubt. The, yeah, that's a great story right there. And I know just in terms of history, the West Coast Dogs are definitely up there with, say, the Austin Blackhawks, you know, the Indy Thunder of late as kind of one of those dominant teams that really had its run. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm glad I was able to be a part of it. It was fun. Definitely. Now, in terms of track and field, then, was it kind of around high school when you really started to get interested in that as well? Yeah, I I was on my middle school track team in eighth grade, and I was, I don't know, maybe 5'5", five, five, maybe 100 pounds, <laughs> probably more like 90-something soaking wet, and I was throwing the shot put in eighth grade. So that was more so I was on the team, the camaraderie was was amazing. People accepted me, and yeah, that's that's what that was for the most part. But once I got into high school, I I participated in this physical fitness test where you had to uh, do a, like these different activities, like push ups, pull ups, sit ups. And one of the activities was standing long jump, stand in one spot, jump as far as you can. And uh, I was really good at doing that. My teacher slash eventual coach at the time told me about the Paralympic Games and how, uh, you know, it was the pinnacle, the competition of all competitions for athletes around the world who have a physical disability. And he said that, you know what, you have the potential to represent Team USA and win medals and break records. So the first event that I participated in was the running long jump and Coach Whitmer had actually taken me to this sports education camp in Kalamazoo, Michigan. It was hosted by the United States Association of Blind Athletes, USABA. And um, at that camp, you would choose different activities to participate in throughout the week. So you would train and work at it, get better. And at the end of the week, you would have a friendly competition against those who were also participating in those, those same events. And uh, I ended up winning the the long jump, and that lit that fire. So when I went back to Raleigh, I joined my high school track team, and uh, you know started my journey as a as a, a long jumper. And um, once I graduated from high school, I went to my first Paralympics, and. Uh, and continued to do solely long jump for those first few years. And then once I got to the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista, that's when I branched out and started doing the long jump. I mean, I'm sorry, the triple jump, 100 meters. And uh, we had a relay team at the, at the time as well. So. And I understand, was it uh, the 2004 Paralympic Games? That was your first, uh, first one? Yeah, that was really, that was awesome. I mean, it's the birthplace of the... Olympics and so much history out there. Um, but even you know, outside of that, to be able to compete and represent my country and in the stands were my mom, my grandmother, Mr. Whitmer and his wife. So to have the people who helped establish that, uh, that foundation for me, to have them in the, in the stands, that was amazing. Felt great. Very cool. And I'm curious just about, you know, life at the Paralympics and you hear things about the Olympic Village and just can you kind of give a little summary of what it's really like to be there among those types of competitors? Yeah, man, it's it's 
it is a large area where i mean you have athletes from every corner of the earth and um i mean it's just a you know it's a really it's it's like a remarkable time um everyone has their their buildings that they you know stay in and and um you know of course some of the larger countries like us and and uh the uk or china and russia you know they take up it could be a couple buildings um, that are specifically for us um but yeah i mean outside of that we have a, a really huge dining area a cafeteria so when you go in there there's nothing for you to kind of kick it with um you know people from your own team or people from you know the u.s swimming team or people from the british the british uh you know, track and field team and and people are just there to some of them are like super duper hardcore in terms of competitiveness and not wanting to mingle with people and just keeping to themselves and and some of us are like hey i mean this is an opportunity where you don't really get these opportunities on a daily basis so after competition you know let's let's just like explore let's meet people let's learn about other cultures and and make new friends and that part is fun as well i mean i have a couple couple friends in spain who i communicate with periodically and um, some of your competitors and sometimes you develop <laughs> friendships with them um <laughs> sometimes you you're just like nah i'm good we, we'll just see each other on the on the field of play uh but yeah and then inside of the village they have um most times they have like a rec room or rec area if you will so you can go and in london for example we had a they had a recording studio in there they had a movie theater they had you know a lot of stuff in rio in rio they had uh video games and like real life type situations where you would step onto um something similar to like like how treadmills the you know the the piece that that goes around 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 um, similar to that type of setup where you like have these like contraptions and remotes and stuff like that. And, and they had like, I guess it was Mario Sonic Olympics. So you're actively running and jumping and <laughs> trying to, it, 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 it was so pretty cool. weird. I was trying, yeah, I was trying to do it and I had someone dictating to me what was on the screen. So they were telling me when to jump or when to run or what, when to do this or that. So, uh, that was that was pretty hard, but um, you know it, it was it was definitely a lot of fun. And uh, there was even one time we went to a competition and they had a they had this room with live instruments in there. So me and a couple of my friends had we were in there jamming out. They had a piano, they had a drum set, had a, uh, some guitars and stuff like that. So yeah, we were yeah we were living our, our best life at that time. Um, so hmm. they they make sure that that. You just have a lot of, you know, a lot of options, a lot of things going on. And they even have an area, we call it the international zone. And so in that space, there's usually a bank. There is a lot of times like a, like postal service where you can send stuff home. They have, uh, like stores that, that would be local to, um, you know, kind of whatever country that is, whatever culture it is. And then they have restaurants 
that you can experience. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's so much to do out there. It's just a matter of, you know, you're there for competition. And um, so that's, you know, first and, and foremost, but definitely have to take the opportunity to enjoy all of those other uh, other items that they make available to us. Because it's, it's, a, it's a crazy, insane, phenomenal experience at the end of the day. Yeah, that's so neat. They just sounds like they just really roll out the red carpet and offer so many other things, you know, obviously in addition to the, the main competitions. Yeah. Now in terms of, uh, let's talk about the long jump specifically. If you could kind of just, you know, guide us through, just kind of describe, you know, what it's like to actually be doing the long jump and having your guide and, you know, what what types of adaptations are involved in that as far as a blind long jumper? Yep, so... In the jumping events, specifically for athletes in the 11 category, or sometimes people will say uh, like a B1, you have a guide. And so this is a person who can see, and they assist you in, in the event. So for me, I have my guide who stands at the takeoff board where you're supposed to jump from, and he claps, he yells, and that gives me an idea of which direction I need to run. And from there, it is me running as straight as possible, as fast as possible to the sound of his voice. And at the appropriate stride, appropriate time, then then I jump. So that's typically, for me, I take 16 steps. So I'm counting that in my head. And at this time, I, you do something for so long that it becomes muscle memory. Um, and, uh, so those 16 strides usually take me, it's like 115 feet from where I am to where he's standing. And, uh, we, we train Monday through Friday. So again, it's something that it's just, it's, it's installed in, into my mind's hard, hard drive, how many steps I need to take and what it feels like. And, uh, once I get to that final step that he bolts out of the way, and that's the same strategy that we use for uh, same method that we use for a triple jump as well. So he stands at the, the area where I need to, to take off from. And once I get to the board, then take the uh, left, left, right or right, right, left for the triple jump. I will say triple jump is definitely more difficult because there is more real estate between where you take off from and the sand pit. So in long jump, you literally run, 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 jump, land in the sand. Whereas in triple jump, you run, 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 jump off of your, or hop off of your left leg and kind of skip off of your left leg again. And then you jump off of that, that right leg. And uh, so, I mean, there's 30 plus feet between where you take off from and the sand pit. So if you don't continue to go straight, then uh, that that could be it could be dangerous for you. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. And then just to to clarify, so your guide he actually stands. He's pretty much directly in front of you, then facing you as you're running toward him right before you take off and leap. Right. Yeah. That's that's why I prefer to have my guide. Some people have their guide on the left hand side of the the runway or the right hand side of the runway, or some of them prefer to have their guides closer to the actual sand pit itself. So. This is all preference, but yeah, my guy stands by the takeoff board 
in the middle of the runway. Oh, I see. And then when you're actually, you know, flying in the air, does the guide provide any kind of guidance, or are you pretty much on your own as soon as you jump? Yeah, you're pretty much, pretty much on your own. I, I would imagine maybe there could be some sort of feedback given, but it happens so fast that you know, once I once I take off, you know, more times than not, I'm a, I'm gonna be you know in that sand pit like immediately. Exactly. Yeah. And I was reading uh, that you had actually gotten the world record then for a blind long jumper just over 22 feet, right? Yup, yup. So I had, uh, I broke that in 2011 at a competition we had in Arizona. And then again in 2015. So yeah, it's definitely, I'm due for another one. So I need to, once they open up the world again and everything returns to whatever our, our new normal is going to look like, then uh, I'm going to get out there and see if I can see if I can go ahead and break it again. Exactly, yeah. And I'm curious, just, I know you mentioned, you know, with the whole COVID-19 situation, how has that affected your training? And I'm also curious about the news of, you know, the Olympic and Paralympic Games being postponed. What kind of wrench does that throw into your plans, and how does that affect you? Yeah, right now I've just been working out in my place, for the most part, so doing what I can here, and um, we are in a process now where um, I think I am going to return to my training group here soon, and once everything had gotten kind of crazy, uh, everyone pretty much kind of went into isolation mode, which got to make sure everyone is safe at the end of the day, and um, so now that... uh, think things are slowly very slowly starting to change but we're going to uh you know get back out there here at the the very least just making sure we're in some sort of some sort of shape because there aren't really many opportunities to compete right now but you don't want to just sit on the sideline and not be uh not be active i mean you've been we've been training for four years so you certainly don't want to do anything to to ruin everything that you worked to do over the past few years. So, yeah, I'm going to get back out there on the track specifically here soon, hopefully. And uh, I think the good thing is that the games were moved to 2021, especially from a, a safety standpoint. You don't want all of these you know, thousands of athletes to be in – you know, close proximity of each other and you know, potentially getting each other sick. And, and as a, you know, Paralympians are athletes who have a, a, a wide range of disabilities. So there could be certain para athletes who are at, you know, at a higher risk than, than the next person. So postponing it and, you know, making sure that, we can get into you know, more of a, a clear space, if you will, with COVID-19. You know, that's that's what you would hope, at least. Um, you know, hopefully when we arrive in 2021, that'll be something that won't be as big of a uh, big of an issue. But um, yeah, I mean, it was definitely tough to receive the news because you're you just imagine yourself going to the games and, and going to compete. And I know I was scheduled to compete on the first day on the evening session. So 
naturally, I'm just like, oh, you know, the lights are going to be on. It's going to be like the stadium is going to be full. They're going to be watching me compete. And then for that to not happen, uh, definitely a, a bummer of sorts. But again, it's just a postponing and not a, a cancellation. So just use this extra time to work on some work on some things that I need to work on and, and get my body ready for next year. Gotcha. I see. And then uh, in terms of other sports, I know you have done uh, some tandem biking. I believe you've been involved with the Blind Stokers Club. And can you talk about any other sports, anything that you've done, or maybe even other sports that you'd like to try at some point? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Blind Stokers Club in, in San Diego is an awesome club, headed up by Dave White. And uh, about a year or so ago, when I was in my off season, I was doing some rides with them just again to make sure my legs were moving and you ride a bicycle you're still able to get some good work in and it's not you're not putting a lot of pounding and pressure on your your joints so that was that was a lot of fun nice to switch it up a little bit and uh any man other sports right now um i will say that i am interested in blind soccer hmm. and uh one of my buddies david brown has uh i guess someone either gifted him or maybe he bought it it's a soccer ball and uh we had actually members of i guess it was a development camp that was here in chula vista one time and they were they were working on their uh, soccer skills and i didn't go out there to to check it out i should have i think i had something going on but um, I'm definitely interested in, in learning how that works. Um, you know, no people will randomly, uh, <laughs> one of my friends is, is like, yeah, man, after you're done with track and field, you can come play soccer. I mean, you already have the speed and you're, you're, you're athletic and the agility and blah, 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 blah. blah. So, um, I think at the, <laughs> I would certainly love to just experience it and see what it's like. But, um, Seems like it would be. I, I don't even have a just a, a minor understanding of it. So in my head, I'm like, well, how does it work? And you know, how do you like? Is the goalie blind? Is like, is everyone blind? Like, how how does it work? Um, but yeah, that'll be something I'll have to do. You know, ask asking and uh, get somebody to give me some insight into it. Definitely, yeah. I know just in my research, uh, it's, it's definitely a growing sport in this country. I did do a podcast on it a few episodes ago, and I know it is it is very big around the world, but really fairly new to the U.S., so I'm definitely excited to you know hopefully see that continue to grow and more opportunities. Right. Just a few other things here uh, before we wrap up. I know you did uh, publish a book recently called Fly. Uh, could you kind of talk about that book? Yep. So Fly came out earlier this year and it is a kind of like a giving people in my life who have helped me get to this point, kind of giving them their roses while they can still smell them. And so I've had so many, so many people involved in my life. And at the end of the day, any, anything significant in life always involves others. So my mom has been a huge influence my orientation and mobility specialist for a number of reasons uh, helped me. My coach, Brian Whitmer in high school, my grandmother, uh, all of these people literally shifted my my mindset to a place where 
I said, you know what? Well, I can, I can do anything. And I was introduced to accessible technology and you know, all of the accommodations that are out there. And, and they literally established this foundation for me where I could, I could use that and catapult into, into other areas of life. So yeah, right now athletics is huge for me and, and I love it. And it's, you know, it holds a special place in my heart, but it was the environment that, that my village, my tribe established for me as a, as a young child to, um, to even, you know, have the courage, courage and confidence to get to this point. So yeah, fly is definitely, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of me telling those stories during those times. And, um, it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. You can get it off of my website, lexgillette.com as well. And, uh, yeah, I hope, hope everyone enjoys it. Awesome. Yeah. And I'll definitely include a link to that, uh, that book in the show notes for people to have uh, one other interesting observation. I was reading this article about uh, how you had made this connection with Christian McCaffrey, uh, the, run, oh. <laughs> the running back for the Carolina Panthers. Could you talk a little about that story? Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I'm a huge Panthers fan being from North Carolina and I was listening to a game last year. I think it was in September. They were playing the, the Houston Texans and, there was this one play that he made, and it just had the world going crazy. Like, <laughs> I remember Woody Durham, or not Woody Durham, sorry, that's that's uh, the late great Woody Durham, but uh, Mick Mixon, who used to he used to commentate with Woody at uh, North Carolina. Um, Mick Mixon is the the voice of the Panthers now, and so I just remember Mick being like, "Oh wow, oh my god!" And so uh, I ended up finding another. Uh, video online as well of another Panthers player, Brian Brian Burns, and this particular play was just like you know Christian McCaffrey. They tossed him a, a pass, and he like taps it up in the air and does like some sort of juggling act. If I you know from my vantage point, some sort of juggling act, and then he like he catches it before he uh, before the ball hits the ground. And I remember uh, I had tweeted something along the lines of, man, I got to get me a, a McCaffrey jersey because this dude is this dude is just a, a beast. Yeah. And um, and so he responded, and, uh, and he was like, I got you. And so he sent me a message, a direct message, and asked for my address, said he was going to send a jersey. And so sure enough, I want to say maybe a week or two later, jersey popped up at my, uh, at my mailbox, and um and he autographed it and and yeah so i framed it and, and it's now hanging up in my bedroom nice that's so cool it just shows the power of social media and you never know who's you know looking and might respond and yeah what connections you can make that's awesome absolutely also in terms of social media i know you also did a video series recently um as far as the the docuseries the last dance on michael jordan Right. I, I know you were kind of demonstrating that how you tell the differences between the, the Air Jordan shoes that you have. Right. Yeah. That, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was a lot of fun. I think that uh, the pandemic has, has lent itself um, to just, you know, we all had to have had to adapt and adjust and do things differently. And, and you know, people are at home and just just a lot of time on our hands right now. And so, uh, the last dance was certainly something that 
that I was interested in, given the fact that it was about Michael Jordan, and Michael Jordan is from North Carolina, and I have a lot of Jordans. And so it just popped in my head one day where I said, man, you know what? I should just go ahead and start tackling some of these questions that people ask me on a daily basis. And one of them is asking me about how do I how do I know what clothes are what and how do I know my shoes, et cetera, et cetera. So when that was going on, I, I took the uh, time to do the videos on the Jordans. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I was just kind of showing people how I operate on a, on a daily basis. And the crazy thing is that that very first one, <laughs> the very first one I posted, it had, uh, I mean, it ended up getting like 160 some odd thousand views on Twitter. And like, it was just, yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. But again, to your point earlier, social media is pretty, is pretty powerful. And I think ultimately at the end of the day too, uh, just shedding light on the fact that, you know, we're able to, I mean, there's, there's so many different things about different, you know, products that the average person just doesn't recognize or, or take the time to. But, um, you know, in my world or you know anyone else who may be blind or visually impaired, um, you know, we figure out different, uh, you know, alternatives to, to get the job done. And that was basically the point that I was really trying to get across. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty clever, you know, series and, and thought behind that. And just to uh, put a bow on this episode, as far as, again, social media, we keep going back to that. If, if anyone wants to follow you on social media, how can they find you out there? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And I am at Lex Gillette, L-E-X-G-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. Or you can go to my website, LexGillette.com. Yeah, hit me up. I'm pretty responsive on on the social channel. So we'd definitely love to hear from, hear from you. Awesome. Cool. Alrighty. Well, Hey, I really appreciate the time, Lex. You were awesome. Gave great insight on so many different topics and I cannot thank you enough uh, for joining us here on the eyes free sports podcast. I appreciate it, Greg. Thanks again for having me on. I had a great time. To hear more episodes of the Eyes Free Sports podcast, visit eyesfreesports.com. Follow the podcast on social media at facebook.com/eyesfreesports and on Twitter at eyesfreesports.